Hey everybody, welcome to Let's Be Real. I know it's been a while. I've been a little bit busy. I should say a lot busy <laughs> with a lot of different things I've been working on, but I'm really excited to be launching this podcast again. A couple of things before we begin. I'm gonna be interviewing lawyers. I think lawyers have a lot of perspective right now that we're not talking about. And so part of this new di direction that we will be taking this journey together on is going to be unpacking the minds of lawyers and the various issues that are facing our profession from mental health to admissions to the actual law itself. All of this said, my first guest in this new series interviewing lawyers is my law school friend, Sydney Montgomery. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody. Thank you guys for joining me. Today, I have my good friend from law school, Sydney, who besides teaching me a lot of really cool dance moves back in law school, is a graduate of Princeton and Harvard Law School who actually stopped practicing law to focus full-time on her admissions consulting business. She's helped folks get into college and law school for the past 10 years and aims to break down barriers for students who want to break in to higher education. Sydney, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I love this. <laughs> Me too. First of all, did I miss anything? Why don't you give us your sort of 30 second, a minute elevator pitch on what you're up to, just in case I didn't hit on some of the stuff you're focused on right now? Yeah, I mean, you actually covered a good amount. Um, I was a practicing family lawyer. I did pivot um, from practicing law to admissions consulting full time. I'm one of those people that like to make sure that if I'm going to do something, I do it right. So I am a member of the Independent Educational Consultants Association and the National Association for College Admission Counseling. I actually am the graduate school committee chair of IUCA and I also am a member of the ethics committee. I have really tried to use my position and my platform to push education to be more equitable and to have those conversations about equity in college and law school admissions and thusly have won a couple of awards for um, breaking down those barriers and was named the 2021 counselor of the year. Um, so I'm really excited to be here. And you're just getting started. Let's let's be very honest <laughs> here. Uh, let's start there because I can tell you when we were in law school and it wasn't that long ago, I, I didn't expect as many of us as I feel like I'm seeing now to be walking out of the legal realm. And some for some of us, it's a revolving door like myself, I left and now maybe I'm gonna start my own firm and practice law on my own terms. But can you talk to me a little bit about your decision to after getting the JD, right after going to law school, a lot of folks wonder, are you locked into being a lawyer forever? What was it for you? How did you overcome that sort of barrier of let me just practice law forever because I have the JD and the power to, but instead I want to go and pursue my own venture. Yeah, so I think for me, I knew going into law school, I mean, I, I knew for since I was eight that I wanted to be a family lawyer. I wanted wow. to move back home to Maryland. I, I wanted to kind of help in those custody um, mediation, um, child advocacy matters. And so I was never that, um, enticed by big law. I, I did like a summer in college just to confirm and it was very confirming. <laughs> that I had no desire to work in big law. Um, but so I knew that I really enjoyed um, working with children. And we talk a lot about the education gap. We talk about teachers, we talk about funding. But for me, I saw a big piece of the education gap as who was at home, uh, information dissemination. And honestly, that's still what kind of spurred my decision to move into educational consulting, but information dissemination and having the resources and the support, which at the time for me looked like, okay, mom and dad or whoever your guardian is, to really help you is such a crucial piece of the education gap. I did see, however, uh, when I, you know, I clerked for a judge on a family rotation and 
then I did practice law. I did practice family law. I wanted to make more of an impact. I actually felt like I was a little bit more of just a spoke on a, a broken wheel. I wasn't really making the kind of systemic change that I wanted to make. And for me also, I'm a very religious person and I, you know, I had simultaneously uh, gotten my certificate in independent educational consulting from UC Irvine while I was clerking, while I was uh, practicing law and I was just feeling um, really pulled in this direction. And, and so I did a lot of prayer and I, I made the decision that I was going to leave and, and focus more on education. And when I stepped into that field, there was just such an outpour of people who had said that they had never really seen a consultant that had looked like me, that they felt like they could see themselves in. And for me, that's when I felt like, okay, this is really the path that God wants me to be on. Uh, because the lives that I'm touching are going to actually, you know, create those um, community builders, those change makers, uh, you know, the people that I work with could be people that change the laws in this country forever. Yeah. And so for me, it felt like I was making a little bit bigger impact. And especially as we as a company also move into the ed tech space to continue to further that impact, I can see how uh, this is uh, where I'm able to make the most change in the kind of equity gaps that we see in this country. There's a lot of things I want to dig into there. The first thing that you touched on briefly, and, and, and you're so wise for figuring this out when you were younger, is is, is big laws is not for me. Uh, and I can tell you, I, I, you know, I agree for the most part. I, I went to Wilson Cincinnati for a couple of years after law school simply because I felt like it was a place to build skills and make good money and whatnot. But when I got there, I found that at least for me, the thing that I really didn't like was the lack of efficiency. I felt like people really just cared about the job and there wasn't really much attention paid to other things. What was it for you that didn't draw you in, so to speak? You know, especially at our law school, where I don't want to say that the institutions kind of push you in the direction to go into big law, but I think the institutions kind of push you in the direction to go into big law, right? So there's a lot of peer pressure yes. um, to go into that path. Um, for me, I like people. I, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm very people oriented. Like I said, the reason why I wanted to be a lawyer was to go into child advocacy and family law. And those just aren't practice areas at big law firms. It's just like not a thing. Um, and, and so it was the summer before my senior year of college when I was working on my law school applications that I, I did a paralegal internship at Wilmer Hale, fantastic firm, love the firm. But none of the practice areas were that exciting to me because I really just want to talk to people all day and I, and I want to help them and figure out what their goals are and what they're looking for. You, you know, family law gets a bad rap because it's like, oh, like the law is kind of light. And and I would say that the law isn't light. I mean, there's some really fascinating legal topics in family law, especially um, with LGBTQ marriage and adoption and a multiple parents. Like there's a lot of really interesting um, legal areas of family law, but for the most part, in your traditional divorce custody, it is the same law, um, but the facts change. And I want to say family law is probably one of the most fact-heavy areas of law. It's really circumstantial. It's really in the details, right? The devil is in the details in family law. And that's when you find out, well, how how many times is your daughter spending the night at grandmother's house? And what is she eating for lunch? And, and those are the people details that I think I love. And none of the areas in big law are like that. And so it was mostly uh, more paperwork and more transactional. And even here in our consulting um, business, we're very firm in that we don't see this as a transactional process, we see it as a relational process. Like we want to build that relationship with you, become part of your life, your family, if you're a high school student. And so I didn't 
see an opportunity to really do that in the practice areas that I was exposed to and in the whole construct of big law, it's not the same values really. Yeah, it, it touches on something that I felt when I was in the industry too, which you spoke about previously, which is this, this desire to have an impact. And mm-hmm. what I found a big law similarly to you, I think is you're very much a cog in the wheel for most of the time, these sort of monolithic corporate clients, not literal human beings that are gaining intrinsic value from your legal services. I mean, I could speak for myself here. I was one of the attorneys who, and <laughs> moral posturing and moral questioning and internal uh, infighting aside here, I was one of the attorneys who drafted the authorization for the board of directors for Lyft to create a super PAC that essentially fought against proposition, I believe it was 22 in California, which mm. essentially, in my legal slash personal opinion, did not do drivers justice. Not only am I not impacting these folks that I would like to help, the drivers, I'm doing the opposite because I'm pushing and aiding the company in its process of controlling and, and retaining power and authority. Let me ask you this, when you were looking around in the legal profession then, maybe big law wasn't it for you, but was there any other avenue or law firm that you saw that maybe you could make an impact in that you wanted to, but it just wasn't big enough? And what I'm getting at here is, I feel like in my own journey through law, the impact is what I've been chasing too, and that's what actually led me out of the profession. And now I'm getting back into it a little bit, but I'm curious from your perspective, if you think this is a law industry thing, or if maybe we're just missing some of these components in the legal industry, like these smaller law firms, you know, like these firms that are more focused on socio and, and, and economic issues that we're focused on. I think, and I, I can only really speak, you know, from my legal experience, which is mostly constrained to family law. I think there are definitely ways to make larger impact, but you can't, at least I didn't see the combination of larger impact and direct people service. Yeah. Right. Um, and so a lot of the students that we work with, they want to make that larger impact. And it looks like policy, right? It looks like legislation that changes the way that we look at the best interest of a child or, or changes the way in which we're defining marriage. There are multiple ways to make a large impact um, in the legal field, but you will not also be then having that direct one-on-one everyday client interaction, right? Yeah. If it, you sort of have to choose if you want that kind of direct services or policy work um, as those two sides of uh, the coin may be. And so I think it's a little different from what I do now, because even if you do the direct services work in family law, you help this one family, there's like the impact doesn't go beyond that one family. And it's great. I mean, to help a family, to help a child is a fantastic thing, but it is very contained um, versus if I help one student become a lawyer, they can then help others, right? It's more of a domino effect. And so I would say that you can make a lot of change as an attorney, and it might be different for also different areas of law, but it is hard to make large scale impact and do direct service work as an attorney. And I think mm-hmm. for me, that's where the rub was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I fully agree. You don't have a lot of the big picture institutional and infrastructural changes when you're purely representing clients, even though you need both sides of the coin. Let me pivot a little bit and talk to you as the the chief admissions expert of the universe, but, but more importantly, <laughs> right now between you and me. This past law school admission cycle I've heard from folks in our community has been very competitive. I have heard that the median LSAT and GPAs are ticking upward. There's a lot of speculation as to why. Maybe more people want to be lawyers. Maybe the GRE is is inflating the LSAT 
uh, medians and whatnot. Give me your take here on sort of this trend, this, this year academically, and where you think it might be heading as well for law school admission specifically. Absolutely. So it's impossible to understand the 2021 to 2022 application cycle if you don't understand the 2020 to 2021 application cycle. Because in most and basically all respects, the 2021 to 2022 application cycle is simply a reaction to the 2020 to 2021 application cycle. And um, when you look at it, the 2020 to 2021 application cycle was the most competitive application cycle in ABA history. This past year, 2021 to 2022, was less competitive than last year. More competitive than, you know, the before times, <laughs> before COVID, right? Um, you know, but less competitive than last year. And I would predict that next year will um, follow the same trend, being perhaps a little bit more competitive than uh, 2019-2020, but overall less competitive than the past two years. This cycle saw a lot of uh, schools overcorrecting for a lot of what happened in 2021 or 2020-2021, uh, because um, there are a number of things that create a rise in uh, law school applications, and that cycle happened to have all of them, right? Um, in an election year, more people go to law school. Um, there was also the confirmation of uh, Chief uh, of Justice um, Amy Coney Barrett, right? And that causes people to go to law school. Uh, there's economic downturn, we know from 2008, when the economy goes down and law school applications go up. There's just a lot of uncertainty. There's also in 2020, of course, um, more activism, right? We saw the rise of a lot of Black Lives Matter protests that causes people to go to law school. Any one of those would have caused a spike in law school admissions. However, in the 2020-2021 cycle, you happen to have all four things, right? It's like literally every week reason for there to be a spike in applications, it was. And, um, you know, law school admissions is on a rolling admission cycle. It is both holistic and comparative. And it's important to understand how law school admissions work in order to understand what happened. Because in the fall of 2020, law schools didn't fully know what was going to happen, right? They have um, certain trends um, and practices that they, they do based on prior years, right? They have algorithms that they use based on prior years. And it became very apparent fairly quickly, but definitely by December and January, that, oh my goodness, applications are up, they were, they were up almost 30%. We did not account for that when we started making acceptances in September and October. Right. And now we're in this situation. That's when you start to see schools like Notre Dame over enrolling and, and having just a fiasco of a deposit day situation. Um, you, you had a number of schools that uh, over enrolled and were offering generous deferment bonuses. Then you just had more students deferring because of uncertainty with the pandemic. And so basically, you know, however many years of algorithms and trends and best practices went out the window for a lot of law schools because they were in a situation that they had never seen before. And and so then when you see this current cycle, you see a lot of schools, one, this was one of the slowest cycles that we have ever had. Um, there are still some schools who have not released all their decisions. Um, this good day, April 20th. <laughs> what you see is that schools were overly cautious this year. They were like, oh no, you're not gonna get me like you got me last year, right? We're not gonna, you know, that's when you start to see schools waitlisting, using their waitlist way more than they would before. No school wants to over-enroll, right? Over-enrolling is like worst case scenario. Well, probably under-enrolling is worst case scenario. And then like a very close second is over-enrolling. A lot of work goes in the back end. That's why we call it enrollment management. A lot of work goes in to make sure that with the yield and, and with their numbers,
rappers that they kind of fall uh, right where they need to be for their uh, institutional priorities and their fiscal budgets, right? It may seem like this cycle is very competitive, but it's really just a reaction to make sure that law schools are serving their own institutional priorities and that they don't kind of get caught twice um you know in a situation that they're not expecting and that's really where the cycle has come from now as that evens out and balances out a little bit um that's why i said i i predict next cycle will be probably a little less competitive than this cycle because some of that stuff will have naturally worked itself out and by the time you get to year three of this kind of new normal we mm -hmm. start to have some data and some trends uh, but you can imagine, you know, not being able to have a, a guidebook for how to go through this yeah. last cycle and then only having a small piece of data for this cycle. And it is true that LSAT medians did go up. They went up during the 2020-2021 cycle. Like I said, it's all a reaction. LSAT flex numbers, uh, there was a huge increase and schools don't uh, report their medians until the end of the cycle. And so what ended up happening, and I think I, I think there was some correction with just the four section of LSAT. I think numbers have kind of returned a little a little bit back to quote unquote normal. But the medians at the end of the 2021 cycle uh, are the medians that students were up against in this 2021 to 2022 cycle. Those medians will likely shift a bit when they get re-reported at the end of this cycle as well. A lot to think about. And so I love that your explanation touches on how 2020 was maybe an off year, but in the big picture, it sounds like the direction of competitiveness is still trending to maybe a little bit more difficult, right? <laughs> you and I, okay, we, we were at our school when uh, it was deranked from number two to number three. I don't know if you remember, it was, I think, our two all year. It became a meme on campus, right? We're now number three behind Stanford, right? Well, guess what? Now we're number four, as I'm sure you're aware, behind UChicago. As my fellow Harvard Law idiot on the show, tell me... What's going through your mind? Did you see this coming? This is your arena and this is, this is, look, I take this personally. I mean, this is our alma mater. This is our, this is my, la this is the most expensive thing I have in my house right here. And now we're right number four. Let me in a little bit on what you think may be causing this. And if you think we will hopefully retain our rank next year. Yeah, uh, you may be a little disappointed by my answer, but um, <laughs> <laughs> here's the thing that you have to understand. Um, Rankings have power because we say they have power. Yes. Mostly rankings have power because people still listen to U.S. News and World Report. Right. Um, U.S. News and World Report would like to stay relevant, right? If it's it's right. completely funded, right? If people stop listening to the rankings, they will have no money. The rankings will have no power. However, so we're in the situation in which the methodology changed. And and to be honest, there are some good ways that the methodology changed. There are a couple of changes, one of which is probably not as exciting. It, they changed uh, the algorithm behind librarian data, right? Like how, how many librarians you have. And, and Riveting. No one, no one is very excited by this. Riveting <laughs> Right. Like people are like, we have librarians. Um, yeah, no one is <laughs> excited and then they changed their um the algorithm on how they factored in bar passage rates it, it used to really mostly be the um place in which most students took the bar so if you're in wisconsin they would look at the wisconsin uh bar passage rate but but now they actually do it for basically every jurisdiction that students are taking the bar as a function of the percentage of students at the school that are taking the bar in that out-of-state jurisdiction and then compared to what that state's passage rate is um it's a little complicated and there are some states for example california that has one of the hardest bar exams in the mm -hmm. country 
it actually has a not so insignificant impact on that methodology. And I say this to also say, it's not like people were really changing a whole bunch of points, but it's a very sensitive methodology ranking, US News World Report. So even 0.2% difference can cause a 17 point jump or decrease, right? It's it's actually very sensitive. And so you have to look at some schools and, and the number of students that are taking the exam out of state or different states and, and how those now numbers are factoring in. That is kind of like a big picture of like what exactly changed. Um, now, I think that on another level, like will we keep changing? I think that US News World Report is going to keep changing their methodology because every time they change the methodology, there are like 17 news articles about it. And people yep. are like, oh, where the new rankings can be. Every time there's a change up, all of a sudden they're higher in the headlines, right? Attention. If they do something, someone very smart says, oh, if we do something that causes Harvard to change in the rankings, right. we will have more news coverage. People will then pay to see the rankings and then we all make money. I am not saying it's all a conspiracy. I'm just saying that there are a lot of factors at play. I tell students that you should take rankings with a grain of salt. Is Harvard right. any worse of a school today than it was three years ago? No, no. it's the exact same school, right? <laughs> Conversely, is U Chicago all of a sudden a much better school than it was three years ago? No, it's the exact same school. Right. Right. Now, if your school dropped 20 points, I would suggest that you look at things that are maybe a little bit more stable, like bar passage rate. If your school's bar passage rate dropped by 20%, yeah, that's a concern. Yeah. I would I would maybe dig into that, right? You can look right. at the employment score. Uh, you can look at the median salaries. These are three numbers that are very objective and mean a lot more to you as an applicant than necessarily what those rankings are. Now, if you look and you say, well, my school dropped 17 points, but their employment score is exactly the same and our bar passage rate is exactly the same and uh, their median salary is exactly the same, then probably you should not care so much. Other than, of course, rankings do affect behavior, and to some degree, it can affect your employability in certain markets. But to be honest with you, most firms are, are no longer, they're not saying, well, we're just not going to hire as many people from Harvard this year because now they're number four and, and now it's only Columbia or Yale or Bust, right? It really is not going to affect within those small rankings. If you look at the top 25, they're still basically the top 25. If you look at the bottom unranked schools, they're basically the same. Yeah. Yeah. What you noted about conspiracy theorizing here, I'll just add on and say there's nothing at all conspiracy driven about the fact that U.S. News and World Report is a company with an incentive to make money. And how do they make money? Like you said, it's by remaining relevant. It's by gaining attention. So I think that it's a very reasonable thing to discuss whether they do these things purely for the PR and the press coverage. And of course, we'll, at least I will probably never know, but I love that you, you focus on the core data points of bar passage, job opportunities, the things that actually matter and are tangible. And also, I would just add the brand name. Because listen, even though Harvard has never been ranked number one, the look on people's faces when, I mean, you've probably experienced this too, when you drop the H-bomb on people, and I'm not talking about in the legal field, I'm talking outside the legal field, it's second to none, okay? It's, it's yeah. no one, no one has that jaw drop for Yale or Stanford. It, it's, it's there, but it's not like Harvard. And even if we're ranked number four, that power will still remain and it'll remain if it's exactly the same it's exactly right. the same i think the only other thing that i would say is that it's important to note that rankings are open to manipulation right they also take into consideration like what your peers think about you like there's a lot of like weird, like there is like a, a lot of weird surveys that happen but you know there was a news article that happened this year about uh, columbia 
right? And the Columbia professor that came out and said, you know, for undergrad admissions, our undergrad rankings and the Columbia professor that came out and said, no, Columbia has been fudging some of these numbers, right? The rankings are not um, immune to manipulation in some ways. And I think that's just really important because some of these numbers are self-reported by schools who are obviously interested in climbing their rankings at, you know, uh, at any level, whether you're talking about those that ranked 50, 80, people have desires to get into the top 100. You know, I'm not saying that all schools are, are fudging their numbers, but I'm just saying that you have to understand that there is some level of imperfection you know, imperfection in the rankings. Yeah, Thank abso- you. absolutely agree with you. Sydney, if folks want to get in touch with you to get into their dream law school, their college of choice, first of all, let me say you guys should all check out S. Montgomery Admissions TikTok, which is at SM Consulting. You might see my face, but that's actually the company's channel. But Sydney, <laughs> what is the preferred method of contact that folks can reach you, learn more about you? And I should just add here that people who want to get into their dream law schools or undergrad, this is a gold mine, right? Sydney is doing what we, I would argue, didn't really have when we were younger, which is sharing a lot of this information, resources, perspective from someone who is in the thick of it. It's not something you're going to find elsewhere. Sydney, where can they find you? Absolutely. You can find us at S. Montgomery Consulting. You can also find us at the same on Instagram. We would love to get in touch with you. We have a number of different resources. We have quick start essay plans that start as low as $35. Uh, We have all the way up through private consulting. I know that it's really hard. We specialize in working with first-gen and minority students. 91% of our students are first-gen or minority um, or uh, minoritized students. And I would say 78% of our students have gotten into a top 30 law school. Of course, we don't make any guarantees or promises about anything but you know one of the things that you can do is control the parts that you can control and we really work with you on your essays on on timing on making good investments 56 percent of our students get at least a half tuition scholarship to law school it's really important when you think about building generational wealth um so i would say you know if you are someone looking to get help on the process and 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 real help i mean if not transactional help right like real help uh telling your authentic story in your essays maximizing your essays having someone just to help you through the anxieties that you might face you know we are real big advocates of mental health of mindfulness of well of wellness we are here for you and we would love to be part of that journey and like you said you can just find us right on our website smontgomeryconsulting.com um you'll see the option for law school or you can hit us up on instagram we would absolutely absolutely love to be part of that you can also follow us on youtube uh s montgomery admissions consulting has a youtube we go live every week with the break into law school show you can also listen to us uh, wherever you get your podcast break into law school is on spotify apple music audible all the good stuff i love it thank you Cindy, and i'll I'll make sure to drop all of those links down below so that folks can can easily access seriously if you want to get into law school this is it guys this is a no-brainer this is seriously no brainer. And we haven't even talked about our killer dance moves, but that'll have to wait until our, our, <laughs> next, our next segment with Cindy. Cindy, thank you so much for coming on. This was wonderful. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Julie. I'm looking forward to next time. Take care. Speaking with Sydney was interesting for a variety of reasons, but the thing that struck me the most is how similar her perspective and my perspective is and was on the legal profession. Namely that we both wanted to make an impact and even after going to law school and getting the JD for that exact reason, to be an advocate as an attorney, we both found that being an actual practicing lawyer wasn't the optimal path for us to go and make that impact. So just some food for thought for folks who are either thinking of going to law school or want to be advocates themselves. 
That's it from me here at Let's Be Real. As always, it's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this, listen, tell a friend, drop a like, drop a comment, share the podcast, subscribe, whatever it takes to get the algorithmic gods on our side, guys. That is the goal here. <laughs> Take care and thanks for your time.